Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Brees. Episode 21, Doctoral Research in Progress, with Tom. Hello everyone, welcome back to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching and if you tuned in a couple of weeks back you will have heard me discussing my uh, doctoral work that I've been doing um, and the first assignment for my doctorate. If you haven't had a listen then maybe go back and and have a listen if you're interested in understanding a little bit more about what I'm doing with my uh, with my doctorate and also an ed d more broadly but it's now Tom's turn to uh, fess up on the work that he's <laughs> been doing and I've got to tell you I need to paint this picture for you it's very much the end of term for us or the end of term is coming and Tom is currently double parked with a coffee and a tea yeah <laughs> I'm going to have so, to do some work in this. <laughs> Tom, first of all, are you okay? Well, it's been a long morning already because I've already produced a, a two-hour live event, um, had a student-teacher meeting about uh, something in a school and had a meeting about an article I'm supposed to be writing. And now we're doing this and we've got more <laughs> stuff after this. So yes, I, I, you know me in the podcast. I like my, my role I've carved out to myself is, is to mostly just be quiet and then cause trouble once in a while while you do all the hard work. <laughs> I know this time I'm in the hot seat. So I have got, yes, the aforementioned two hot drinks in front of me and I'm braced for impact. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try and be gentle. Okay, so... You're doing a little bit different to me. You're you're doing a PhD, um, yes. and I sort of tried to explain the difference between the two in my episode. So we won't go over old ground there. But I'm actually going to go a bit maverick now and uh, divert from question one that you've got in front of you, and just I'll just ask first of all, and and I don't know, you might want to edit this out, but I'm going to say it anyway. People might not know this about you, but you did embark on a PhD in an earlier life. Yes. No, I won't edit that out. I will leave it in because I might as well might as well air my my baggage in public here that yes, I did my music degree. I did my masters. My masters is in music in music performance studies. And I did have sort of vague ideas about becoming an academic even then when I was a student uh, the first time around. And yeah, I thought about doing a PhD. I'd had a lovely time doing my dissertation. Um, I'd basically been worked half to death doing my master's. And I, I did think about doing a PhD because I did sort of quite fancy the idea of the academic world. But it didn't really work out for a number of reasons. I mean, the first reason was that I was very, very tired because I'd been going for four years nonstop um, mm. in uni. And, and the, the MA was very hard, not least because I was the only person on the programme that year and the person supervising it was an internationally renowned professor whose brain was about eight million times the size of mine so it's a hard year um also i i felt and i hope i'm not going to be really rude about the world of musicology here i embarked on the masters and very quickly realized i didn't entirely fit in in the sort of postgraduate academic music world um, there were a number of issues I had with it. Um, interestingly, not not the least of which was that I attended a, a lecture given by a guest lecturer who will definitely remain nameless. And um, it was presented incredibly boringly. It was read in a monotone from, from a paper. And we had to do the seminar the morning after where we sort of deconstructed and all these very arrogant 
postgrad musicologists all sort of um I suppose fought to outdo one another in in saying what they thought were very profound things and arguing a lot and I just pointed out that I'd overheard this guy complaining about how long it had taken him to get to Cardiff from his his institution which I won't name and I'd suggested that since he presented it so badly that he might as well have posted it to us <laughs> and I was shot down in in flames by pretty much the whole room who who literally told me that I had a very undergraduate perspective if I felt that lecturers had any responsibility to present their work in a way that wasn't going to bore their audience to tears. At which point I really did kind of feel that perhaps I was I was in the wrong room. Uh, (laughs) And when I started the PhD, as is the want of many universities, you know, I was given some some sort of basic teaching um, responsibilities, which included teaching pastiche 18th century harmony, (laughs) 16th century counterpoint, keyboard harmony, electroacoustic composition, all sorts of random things that nobody wanted to do. And absolutely loved it. And that was when I got bitten by the teaching bug. And so really and truly, I think that was when I, I knew I was going to have to get out of there and go somewhere where, where you know, how you taught was, was really, really important. So obviously I went off and did a PGC, became a teacher and then got hoovered into the world of academia via a different entrance <laughs> when I ended up back here 10 years later. So yes, that's my, that's my sad tale of woe of the first time I attempted to do a PhD and ended up running for the hills. <laughs> Tom's academic life, a part yeah. of history. So yeah. fast forward then, you've brought us back up to date now yes. and, um, you know, again, diverse from the questions here but um why is the time right now and do you feel that the time is right now and why is a phd important to you right now well it's a mixture of the pragmatic and the slightly more high-minded i mean pragmatically speaking at the time that i started here it was actually written into our contracts that those of us without doctorates would would go forth and get them now Departments of initial teacher education are a little bit odd, I suppose, in a university perspective, because most university departments will be absolutely, you know, rammed with people with doctorates. It's pretty much the first on the list of essential characteristics for for becoming a lecturer in an awful lot of university departments. But of course, when you're when you're in the Department of Initial Teacher Education, what you really, really need is people who've who've been there and seen it and done it in the classroom. And therefore that does sort of come above the doctorate thing you know they, they're, they're happy for you to get that later um, as long as you you know your stuff in the classroom and are of an academic kind of frame of mind and you know have a master's and that kind of thing so it was written into my contract and I think we, we did reach a point where where we could have gone and, and have that taken out of our contract if we'd wanted to I think the pair of us could have done we had meetings with with HR here and all sorts of things and actually I thought well no, I I think it is important that I I do sort of show willing on the academic side here, even though obviously I'm here to, to teach teaching. Um, but it is a research informed academic profession. And I did feel that was something I wanted to do. And so I thought, yeah, let's let's give it a go. I felt I felt a responsibility because we, we have a sort of we have the role of teaching, we have the role of research and we do have the role of enterprise as well as academics. And I, I did want to have a good stab at all three of those. So, yeah, I'm, I'm back in back in PhD world once again. <laughs> 
You are. And you've actually, if you don't mind my saying so, made some really great progress so far. And you're at a really interesting stage. Um, I, I, I don't even know where you are in terms of time. It's probably best not to talk about time when it comes to PhD. <laughs> no, the, the thing about the PhD, as we were saying last time, is it is just a massive empty box marked PhD, isn't it? There yeah. isn't really a structure and there isn't really any kind of thing to follow. You just have to go and make some new knowledge really however you're going to get there and so yes it's a goodness knows where I am I I, the the starting line is out of sight and so is the finish line at the moment I think well I mean you were kind enough to send me some of your working progress and um, you have started writing you've obviously done a lot of reading and you've also started gathering your own data and analysing that so I think it's a really good point for us to put out into the world your initial thoughts about what you're finding out. And um, I've had a little nosy already at some of the written thesis that you've sent to me kindly. And I was drawn in straight away because you start out by discussing the story of the rise of Welsh of the Welsh music ensemble in mining communities um, as your kind of opener. And I just want to know, you know, why you made that choice how Im- and how important is the Welsh context to your doctoral study and how it kind of gave rise to what you are trying to investigate in it? Yeah, it's a high risk opening and it may not survive the <laughs> editing process to the end. But I have I have opened it by painting the picture of, I suppose, the, the sociocultural scene in Wales around the sort of heyday of mining and ironworking and all those things that all the sort of towns in the South Wales Valleys and, and beyond, um, but particularly we, we think of the South Wales Valleys, that those towns were kind of thrown up in a great hurry to service, you know, that that new industry. Oddly enough, that's something I wrote my undergraduate dissertation about. So I know a fair amount about that. But yes, what on earth am I doing starting off with that in a, in a PhD, which is something to do with music teaching? Well, what I'm trying to find out in my PhD is is I'm trying to get a picture of what music teachers in Wales believe about music teaching. So like what they should be doing, what what's important, how should they do it, what are their priorities, what are their values and beliefs as music teachers. That was my kind of aim, particularly because as we keep going on about in the podcast, we're at a time of, of big education reform in Wales. And music is a funny one. I mean, this has got so many threads to it, this this whole kind of scene. You know, music teaching is a funny one. There's a big body of literature which sort of suggests that music teachers tend, generally speaking, to be classically trained, you would call it, and have the sort of values of classical training, whereas the people that they teach tend not to have the values of classical training. They tend to be, you know, into their pop music and wanting to create bands and things like that. And there's a tension there. And there's all sorts of literature about those beliefs. And so I thought it was interesting to have a look at what music teachers in Wales believe at the moment as we are in the middle of kind of doing all this this reform. And it was only really once I started going with that that I realised or, I, you know, I was put onto this a little bit by my, my director of studies, actually, who's written about this, that the idea that actually maybe Wales is not the same as everywhere else. 
Now, we know that, particularly those of us in the UK, know that the education was devolved in Wales in 1999 when when the first kind of bits of Welsh devolution came in. Education has, from those first days of devolution in, in 99, been a Wales-specific thing. And the curriculum has kind of headed off in its own direction a little bit since 99 um, from England. There's always been a, a tension there between those two different approaches. But what I had no idea about, because I am, believe it or not, too young, is that actually <laughs> when the first national curriculum came along in Wales, in when would that have been? So 1992, you know, they were laying the groundwork for it in the late 80s and into the early 90s. Wales had had an opt-out from the central uh, Westminster version of the national curriculum even then even before devolution Wales had the option to opt out and there were a very very small number of subjects which opted out and came up with their own curriculum and music was one of them they were basically all the kind of ones that that were quite sort of cultural so you know history was one of them um, art was one of them as well I think and Wales had gone its own way it had envisaged the the music curriculum differently from the very start there'd been an almighty fight in England about the music curriculum when they were in the process of writing there was basically this massive fight between music educationalists who believed in music as a practical holistic subject which was performing composing and praising not music appreciation not writing essays about the life of Bach or anything like that there was a big fight between them and the policymakers in England who did feel that there should be a little bit of music appreciation and understanding the great culture and all that kind of stuff, which, of course, is coming in quite a lot now mm. um, <laughs> in England. No, the history is repeating itself a little bit there. And over in England, they'd ended up with this very messy compromise between the two sides after much kind of arguing, which I, I sort of cover in the PhD a little bit. And in Wales, they just went with the holistic, fully practical version from the start. And so there is stuff, if you dig around in the newspapers from the time, there are people writing in the English press basically saying the Welsh have got it right. The musicians in Wales have got the upper hand. And I had no idea about that. I mean, I remember being a kid in primary school, actually being the, the swatty kid who was given the job of delivering the new national curriculums to all the classrooms <laughs> when it came in. I was about, I don't know, about 10 or something like that. But in Wales, they'd opted out. And so I had thought, well, why is this? Why have they opted out? And and so I'm, I'm just sort of lining myself up to potentially make this argument that the history of Wales, where you had the chapels, the choirs, uh, you had a strong culture of this kind of self-improvement thing, which was all bound up with temperance. And it was bound up with the awful social conditions in which people were living in the valleys in that time. You know, the housing was awful. The jobs were incredibly dangerous. People's life expectancy was very short. That music was in, was framed as a participatory thing in Wales from back then. And, you know, we have to be really careful not to stereotype. I and mean, there are loads of hilarious things on Twitter, you know, where people are pulling up. Uh, journalists for writing these sort of ridiculous things, you know, implying that they sort of sing four-part harmony in the streets in Tonopandi, you know, whenever something nice happens and all that. You know, we're going to be really careful not to mm. not to over-egg the pudding. But there was a strong tradition was was created along along with that industrial kind of uh, bunch of settlements. Um, of music as a, as a participatory thing, you know, and it's people uh, joining choirs and singing Handel oratorios, uh, you know, in four-part harmony and eight-part harmony and things like that. And so 
I'm just putting it in there. I'm putting it in there because I might be able to form quite an interesting argument that there is a there is a different tradition and a different culture here which maybe has has influenced the beliefs and the the practices of how music is done in the classroom in Wales as opposed to England which is really fascinating but of course um you train teachers on the IT programs here at Cardiff Met who could teach anywhere not just Wales so I'm quite interested to understand why you've gone with pedagogical beliefs um, of music teachers and what this could mean for sort of how you how this influences your teaching and how you work with student teachers coming on to a, a Welsh IT program but also how it maybe could set them up um, to be successful within our curriculum here in Wales but also beyond yeah, well, it's interesting because I came into this job, you know, working full time, working on the PGC as the dust was settling on the original Donaldson report of 2015. Um, and I distinctly remember right at the end of a PGC year, just kind of saying to the class, right, you know, this report has landed. What do you think? Um, and they'd all kind of grabbed the fact that they were talking about working across subject disciplines making connections between those subject disciplines and they hated the idea they absolutely couldn't see anything positive about it all they saw was that they were all going to lose their jobs and be replaced by sort of jack of all trades creative arts kind of you know generalists mm. and I mean, I think there is an argument to be made for the fact that perhaps in the secondary side of things, we have got a little bit hung up on the whole cross-curricular thing, almost to the exclusion of quite a lot of other quite important aspects of the curriculum. Um, but I mean, music is an interesting one in terms of pedagogic beliefs and what the literature is telling us about music teachers and what they believe and what they do. Now, what I didn't want to do was to just dive into the sort of generic world of, you know, music teachers. They're all classically trained. They all want to teach Bach and the kids all want to jam in a garage kind of thing because, you know, it didn't kind of, didn't kind of grab me that much in all honesty. Um, and, and also, you know, I just think that would be quite a difficult one really. Um, but it did seem to me that, that at a time where we were sort of staring almost at a blank sheet of paper, you know, the potential of some really major changes to what, what, we, what we do and what we're for as music teachers. I thought it was just really important to know what's going on out there. What do they actually believe? Now, when I start the PGC every year, we, we tend to have a look at an article, quite a well-known article by Ruth Wright, formerly of this parish, now over in Canada, <laughs> in which she, you know, really interestingly writes about this music teacher who's, who's done her best to kind of get down with the kids and pick all this music that they like, you know, and there's quite an old article. So, you know, the Spice Girls gets mentioned all that kind of thing. <laughs> but she kind of concludes that that actually when you really, really drill down to it, this music teacher is still running it like an orchestra, still in charge, still got control over all sorts of things. And I, I don't know, I just I just wondered what it was, uh, whether this was still the case. Do music teachers still behave like this? I mean, I know that my PGCE class it is mostly from what you call a traditional 
music background. You know, they go to conservatoires like the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama or, you know, the Royal College, places like that. Or they go to universities that offer really traditional academic music degrees. You know, we're talking Cardiff, Bristol, York, places like that. And there is literature out there which says that the way that you learn music, particularly when you get to that kind of elite university level, the way that you learn it has a really strong impact on your values and and how you believe it should be taught. And so that would imply that, you know, the majority of my PGC students coming on the programme believe that they should teach in quite a classically biased sort of way, quite strong control by the teacher, you know, that sort of thing. And maybe I just had a bit of a hunch that wasn't really the case because my lot are philosophically sort of on the bus with with a lot of the inclusion and the idea that the you know the pupils values are really really important so I just thought it was important to find out what these music teachers in a country that was in the middle of massive curriculum reform actually believed because it's kind of hard for me to send my students out there I guess not knowing what I'm sending them into. Thanks, Tom. So um, then I suppose your supervisory team said, right then, Tom, you better get down to business and (laughs) and find some of this stuff out. So you decided that you wanted to dig into this by actually going directly to music teachers. You wanted to um, gather data via questionnaire and from that do some interviews with music teachers. So why did you choose those two types? Because, you know, you could have chosen any number of ways to find out this information. So so why questionnaire? Why interview? Yeah, well, my approach to this did have to evolve a little bit because at exactly the point I sort of flicked the switch on my data collection, you know, a small matter of coronavirus uh, landed in the public <laughs> consciousness and all my plans uh, were completely undone by it, really. I mean... Looking at it on a really pragmatic level, and, you know, lots of people that do research like this will know this, questionnaires are great in that they're incredibly cheap to create and deliver. They're very, very easy to create and deliver. You can send them out to absolutely everybody. And that is literally what I did. I sent them to every school in Wales electronically. You get them back instantly. And the nature of the sort of questions you tend to put in questionnaires mean that you can make pretty graphs and chuck figures around really, really easily. I mean, those are the benefits of them. You can get a load of stuff really quickly and really easily and you can make pretty charts of them that that tell you interesting things. I mean, obviously, there are downsides related to that. I mean, it's quite hard to get real kind of detail in a questionnaire. You know, you can find out the what of what people think but you generally don't know why they think it unless you start asking really open questions which then make the thing pretty unmanageable um but really i I thought it was for, for the amount of work involved which was not a lot it was worth just throwing my net wide both in terms of the number of people i sent it to and the range of questions that i asked and just finding out what people thought. And so I sent out a questionnaire and most of it was based around having a sort of slider with a with a kind of pointer in the middle and then two opposing things at each end and they could sort of slide the slider as far in each direction as they felt, you know, they were in relation to those statements. And I had loads of ones about 
the teaching of music itself, you know, so things like the how much control the teacher should have over the musical content versus the pupils, how much control the teacher should have over the sort of the way that the lesson goes and the, the way that the time is used and, you know, the direction of the learning compared to the pupils, all that kind of stuff. But I also asked some other kind of slightly more pokey and tricky ones. You know, I started asking questions about to what extent should we as teachers set the parameters of what a creative outcome should be in order to be successful? I asked some really you know, tricky ones like, are we there to make better musicians or are we there to make pupils generally more creative, you know, in a transferable way? And I was starting to, to ask more new curriculum related questions there. I also wanted to know what they made of this whole cross-curricular thing because as I said initially the first set of students I spoke to hated the idea and I think I think generally people have got more optimistic as time has gone on but with caveats you know and we've talked about those caveats in previous podcast episodes where we've said if you're not careful the outcomes can be a bit poor so I was asking them questions like should the pupils get a strong grounding in the subject discipline of music before they try to make the connections with other subject areas or do making the connections with the other subject areas first make them have a better grounding in music? You know, they were really kind of philosophical, difficult kind of questions. Um, and it was mostly that sort of thing. So, yeah, I got those in and, and that gave me quite a lot of interesting information. I got a good response rate, actually. Um, I sent it to about 200 and odd schools and I got about 75 responses back. So, that, you know, it's not bad. Mm. It was enough to use. And then what I really wanted to do was set up focus groups. So I was going to do and set up some little discussion groups around the place and, and really kind of drill down into that in a group discussion format. But by the time I'd got onto that, we were all locked down with no hope of escape. And in in sort of discussion with my supervisory team, we decided that trying to do a focus group via Teams with a bunch of people that didn't know each other was just going to be the most awkward thing ever. So I went back to the ethics committee to get permission to swap them to individual interviews. So I actually spoke to nine music teachers individually uh, on a Teams call, which I recorded. And that was designed to fill in the gap left by the questionnaire. I didn't ask any different questions. Um, I asked, I basically asked them the same questions again, but I was then able to say why or, you know, can you elaborate on that and that sort of thing, which just meant that I could get a little bit more detail. And the other thing which I wanted to know was, was what their background was like. You know, was it true that most of them were classically trained as well? That was the other thing in my questionnaire. So yeah, that was my that was my approach, and I and I got loads of lovely data. So the the questionnaire made me lots of lovely charts, and the interview, you know, the interviews created loads of transcripts, which I could then kind of dig through in search of interesting themes. And then, of course, Envivo filled up with a load of stuff that you needed to uh, to code. And for those of you who've never used Envivo before, <laughs> it's uh, a wonderful world awaits you of coding yes. qualitative uh, data. I don't think it's... Is it just for qualitative data? Yeah, you well, I wouldn't describe myself as an Envivo expert. But yes, it has to be said that, that you know, the, the advantage of the interviews is that you can really dig into the why and get loads of detail the disadvantage is you end up with thousands and thousands and thousands of words with loads of random digressions and ums and repeated sentences and people losing the thread and all of that kind of thing which you've got to try and deal with you know and that stuff's not easy to deal with it's messy and it's time consuming and it's hard work and actually 
Envivo is a great piece of software to help you code. But I'd be lying if I said it had any kind of magic powers. I mean, it is just a place where you can collect all those documents, all those transcripts of what everyone said. And it just allows you to highlight chunks of text and assign them a code, a theme, something like that. So I had themes like what motivates pupils, you know. So if a teacher was talking about what they felt motivated the pupils, I would highlight it and code it with that. And off you go, you know, you go down through the nine documents and then by the time you get to number nine you've made loads of codes that you haven't thought to make in the first and you have to go back to the top again and start again (laughs) until you don't create any new codes and then what you've got is a list of themes which you then have to try and make some sense of so yeah it all becomes a bit of a manual process once you're dealing with qualitative data so you're you're now at the interesting stage where you've you've looked you've done quite a lot of coding and you're probably starting to find some exciting things emerge obviously with these kind of big themes and sub themes and what I'm keen to know is what have been the most compelling findings so far are you able to tell us that? Yes I uh, had to get really out of my comfort zone with this one because my supervisory team asked me to make sense of all these themes because you know some of them appeared in multiple places in all the interviews and some of them didn't appear very often only appeared in a couple Um, Mm. and some of them were related to each other so for example I had a theme about music technology and I had a theme about the music industry um, and I had a theme about real world contexts and all of those are clearly quite closely related so they said right you've got to make sense of all these themes you've got to see how they all connect to each other or not get a big bit of paper and some pens and try and make some sort of visual representation. And anyone that knows me knows I am pretty uncomfortable with with all things, you know, visual representation. Before um, PowerPoint had the old design ideas button, my PGC students used to mock me unmercifully about the boring appearance of my slides. <laughs> uh, so yeah, not really my my strong point, but I did it. I sat down the other day with some massive sheets of paper and some Sharpies they were mine i didn't pinch yours don't worry because um, <laughs> i know you have many boxes partial of to a sharpie yeah i've just got a, a very small number of slightly dried up sharpies um and i did just start trying to model what they looked like so i i took i thought the most obvious thing to do would be to take the one that that appeared most frequently in my themes i thought well that's most likely to have something useful about it and the one that came most frequently in the interviews was oddly enough it was the concept of the pupils being in control of the learning having having some sort of control over what was going on um now sometimes the teachers were saying they didn't give them very much and and sometimes they were saying that they wished they could but they you know they couldn't for various reasons but this this theme of them being in control so i thought i would I would start with that and kind of see what what came up. Now, I mean, the trouble is it's quite difficult on a podcast, isn't it, to tell you about a, a visual representation. I've got it on my desk. I'm going to wave it at you, Emma. There it is. Yeah, well, what I found interesting about it was that even though it's kind of, it's got these themes, it had a bit of a sense of time to it because you've 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 had some stuff about, you know, pupils experiences in primary in music and you know how that feeds into what comes next in their secondary experiences it had a feeling of kind of 
almost time a linear narrative to it in a way as well it's funny you should say that actually because it did end up like that that wasn't actually what i was looking for when i did it i didn't i had a completely open mind when i started doing it but but once i'd created a little model for pupils in control and then i did one for my second most frequent one which was making connections between music and other subjects now that was quite frequent because i did explicitly ask about that because as i mentioned before it was something i found interesting what people thought about it by the time I'd sort of crunched all of these things together, I did end up with this sort of model, which basically going in reverse order, you know, over on the right hand side of my massive sheet of paper, it's got the sort of the outcomes, I think, that the teachers are looking to achieve. And then sort of in the middle of it, you've got sort of things that they feel are going to get them there. Um, so, you know, as an example, you know, outcomes, there's some really pragmatic ones, you know, getting numbers at post 14, you know, when music stops being compulsory, they want people in, in the classroom so that their courses can run. They want them to do well um, at GCSEA level and BTEC. Um, they want them to be motivated. They want them to do creative things. They want to broaden their musical horizons. You know, these are the kind of aspirations, I think, of the teachers. And then things in the middle that they feel kind of help. I mean, they, they all tended to say that the pupils were much more motivated if they felt they were in control of the learning. I mean, not all of them felt that they, they were able to give them as much as they wanted, but they felt that was a motivating factor. They did see working across subject areas as being potentially motivating and it helping them to bring in real world contexts, which would be good for the pupils. So those were sort of sitting in the middle. And then I've got this sort of really really strange complicated one over on the left which, which sort of shows what the teacher you know it has the pupils kind of coming in on the left with as you say their experience of primary school music which can be very variable you know from very little at all to some really good stuff their existing tastes in music you know they bring those things into the classroom and then this this space that the teacher creates which includes a kind of ethos of it being safe to make mistakes and try things out and all of that and sort of things like basic musical building blocks and all of that it's all there and they sort of go around in these cycles of structured exploration with this aspiration that they'll progress to a place where the teacher perhaps has less explicit control and the pupil has a little bit more so yeah one of my supervisors from outside the music field kind of said oh this looks like a model of change you know you've got an input output model all this kind of stuff anyway she's emailed me a pile of articles which you can now see on the desk between us um, <laughs> which i now have to read about change so it's interesting because we were talking about that last time weren't we with you you ended up reading about change absolutely guess what <laughs> my inbox is full of change <laughs> Well, I'm gonna, um, I, th I think all of this is absolutely fascinating and I'm seeing a lot of parallels already and hopefully anyone who is doing um, kind of curriculum for Wales, cross-curricular stuff out there listening, I'm seeing so many parallels with um, the contradictions and the dilemmas that drama teachers face about who they are, what they're for, what they should and shouldn't teach, how they should and shouldn't teach it, etc, etc. So I think there's definitely, you know, um, a big, massive invitation for teachers, particularly in the arts, to have these 
conversation. I think your work is going to make a big, big contribution to this. So I, I congratulate you for what you've done so far. Thank you. Yeah, well, my, my eventual aim is to create this sort of model. I mean, you're trying to create a model as well, aren't you? Mm. A conceptual model. Um, and that's where, where the level eight thing comes in. I mean, if you've been following this discussion, you know, PhDs and EDDs are at level eight. And to some extent, you have to be able to create something. I mean, it's a bit more explicit on the PhD, but I mean, obviously the EDD is at level eight as well. You have to do something that is new. You're not just reporting on something um, that's there already. You have to then turn it into something that hasn't existed before. Now, on the plus side, a lot of this stuff that's coming out of these teachers is contradicting that big body of literature that talks about the gap between teachers and pupils and that sort of thing. So I'm hoping that by the end, I will have a really interesting conceptual model which is relevant to the new curriculum, relevant to music teachers, and potentially kind of moves the the sort of discussion forward about what we think about music teachers that's the plan anyway that yeah that sounds really really interesting and i'm sure there'll be a lot of music teachers out there and trade people like us ite tutors working with music teachers who will get a lot from what you're doing so well done for what we've done so far <laughs> i just wanted to come back to a previous point you mentioned you've mentioned a few times now that um your supervisory team, they, they're quite interesting. They represent quite a range of disciplines, research backgrounds, and you've got a bit of a cast of thousands. Have you got three? I've got three, yes. <laughs> we, we did we did consider pitching for four, but we thought we might be uh, asking for a bit much there. Yeah, but I've got three. Um, I haven't got a secondary music specialist anywhere in there, interestingly. And and are they a chorus of disapproval? or <laughs> <laughs> Depends. Are they singing in harmony Depends or is there discordance? Do. Well, <laughs> I mean, I do think actually it can be helpful if your supervisory team isn't too much kind of from the same background. I don't. I don't think I'd feel comfortable if they always agreed. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm spoiler alert, my, my supervisory team don't always entirely agree on everything. Um, my director of studies has got a music specialism. It's Professor Gary Beecham, and he is a primary specialist, but he is a music specialist and a technology specialist as well. Um, and so he brings to the table a music kind of knowledge he also does know a lot of that stuff that I was talking about the kind of cultural sort of scene you know all of that that, that, that I was talking about right at the start um, and, and and he's an education specialist as well so so he talks about education research but my other two supervisors um, Dr Nicola Bolton and Dr Alex McKinch they actually come from a, a sport background and actually Nicola her, it actually works for our school of management so she also comes from a sort of management uh, change management kind of background so i've got a real mix there now it does mean that i mean sometimes the guys from sport don't know stuff which to me and gary we, we know it you know it's our bread and butter but that's a really good thing sometimes because it can be we've talked about novice questions before and I, you know it sounds incredibly rude to describe members of my supervisory team as novices but what i mean is they will ask me a question and they will expect me to explain it without all those assumptions and all of those kind of yeah we all know that kind of things because actually those are really dangerous sometimes and so you have to you have to be able to justify what you're doing without any 
uh, kind of assumptions being made. And so that can be really useful. I mean, it's also been really interesting to hear about how things are done very differently because sport is is much more of what we might think of as a, as a sciencey kind of discipline. And so they talk about having particular models of of carrying out research, you know, which which we just don't really tend to do, you know, standard models for I don't know, finding out stuff about muscles and things. I don't really know. But <laughs> and you know, that their expectations about response rates even, like at a really basic level, um, they were saying, Well, what would you consider a, a, an acceptable response to this questionnaire? And 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 you know, one of them was saying, you know, we we look for at least uh what did he say it was now? Seventy five percent response rate or something. And we were just <laughs> jaws on the floor going, Well, we'll probably be be okay with ten percent response rate. That sort of thing. I think we ended up with something more like about twenty five thirty. But just all of those expectations are really different. Having said that, as we've moved on and as I've sort of brought the people from outside the education discipline and the music discipline with me on this kind of what I'll stereotypically describe as a journey, the parallels have started to come out. And, you know, we've talked loads about the parallels between music and sport. You know, we've had Fiona Heath Diffie on twice talking about that. And those parallels have really started to come out. But now that I've got this model that's starting to take shape from the management point of view as well, you know, Nicola Bolton has, has seen the parallels with, with models of change. And so she's able to email me some really interesting stuff about change. So, I think it's good to have a wide range of disciplines in your supervisory team because actually what is the point of having three people who are all just going to agree with each other and all going to have the same assumptions and, and you know, pre-existing knowledge that I have? That's not going to be sufficiently challenging. Uh, but it does mean that, you know, you're, you're deliberately giving yourself a slightly more difficult ride, but hopefully for good reasons. Well, that's really good to hear and I, I guess you know we're starting to draw to a close now but I, I'd be keen to know if and I'm sure it has I'm sure that, that it's obvious to our listeners but I'd like to know how your doctoral study has influenced your work with the PGCE students because they're not actually part you've made a conscious decision that they are not participants within your research so I'd like to know how it's influenced that and also what's your kind of next major milestone? Yeah, I mean, when we do education research, we have to consider ethics and you have to go up in front of the ethics committee and ask permission to do any research before you're allowed to do absolutely anything at all. And at a very early stage, I think we were all agreed that if I were to include uh, PGC music students it was just going to get weird ethically because obviously I'm their subject lead. I assess aspects of what they're doing. You've got a massive conflict of interest going on there. You know, they, they might feel that they had to participate in order to make me happy or that they might have to say the right things. I mean, I try to be pretty neutral in a lot of things that I say in class. You know, I try not to push too many kind of things that, that, that they feel that there's a sort of way and a not way of doing things but you know you're always worried that they're gonna they're gonna say things because of who you are not because of what they believe and so I mean you know in all honesty there's only 14 of them anyway this year and so to to gain an extra whatever percent of those 14 for the price of that even that perceived conflict of interest was just not worth it it just wasn't going to be helpful um so yeah they were they were excluded from it for a while in terms of how it's helped i mean actually one of the one of the really interesting things about this was as as we you were sort of implying when you were talking about your research the other day 
when you start off with a PhD and you're just sort of floating around in this massive empty space <laughs> called make some new knowledge. Um, I mean, I really, <laughs> I really did just spend the best part of a year just sort of thrashing around reading whatever came in front of my nose. And in a funny sort of way, some of that stuff has been some of the most useful um, for this. I mean, you know, all of this work in progress is, is it's not kind of ready to present yet and so that's all still in the in you know hidden in my computer but a lot of that that early reading that I did around the international curriculum trends that have informed the new curriculum in Wales you know stuff from the OECD stuff from UNESCO all of that I mean I did loads of that reading uh, around curriculum and I didn't think it was going to actually be any use in the end, but it has. It's been really useful uh, in writing the contextual stuff for the PhD, but it also really helps me with the students kind of resist that urge to see the new curriculum in Wales as happening in a vacuum, whereas actually it's part of a big sort of international move towards what's going on. Um, and the other thing I think which has been interesting, although a bit like you, you were saying with the with the change thing, you know, you, you find yourself tiptoeing onto the fringes of a massive field and you are both excited by it and also a little bit concerned you're about to fall down a rabbit hole and never return. Yeah. And that is some of the stuff around sociology, um, now, Ruth Wright, who I mentioned earlier, I did actually phone Ruth Wright in the very early stages of this. And we were talking about something else, but she made this sort of slightly cryptic statement to me on the phone. She said, when I was starting off as a researcher, you know, as a, as a music specialist, because she's a music specialist and she taught me at A-level actually briefly. Um, when I discovered sociology, it completely kind of opened my mind. And she sort of said it was like the starting point of something really big. And I didn't really get what she was saying. But having read some of the stuff about what they're calling specialization codes, you know, some of the stuff about, you know, Bernstein and all of that kind of thing. Not Leonard Bernstein, music fans, um, Basil Bernstein, <laughs> sociology fans. Yeah, no, not, not the not the Sharks and the Jets guy, different Bernstein. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is fascinating because it helps you define all all sorts of things about subject disciplines and the way people interact with them, which you know in your heart, but you've never been able to really, really nail down on paper. And so that field of sociology in relation to music is is the one where I sort of teeter on the brink of it, wondering whether to dive in or whether to run for the hills, you know, because it is genuinely absolutely fascinating. Mm, mm. And, you know, of course, like I said, time is always a, a bit of a scary one to discuss <laughs> yes. when it comes to a PhD. Yes, you asked me about milestones and I avoided the question, didn't you I? You totally <laughs> did, but you're not getting away with it because I'm asking the questions uh, here, Breeze. Yeah, okay. So, uh, <laughs> Well, i got a number of things I want to get done. Um, I mean, really, I know you've said I've written loads of contextual stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally fess up and say that the main reason I did that was because I just like to get stuff done. And while all the research kind of gathering and data gathering was all very very much at an early stage and getting a bit sort of obstructed by COVID. I was just wanted to get words on a page. So all that, all that kind of contextual stuff got written just so I had something to do. I need to be able to present this model. I need to check, you know, that it all fits in with both the questionnaire and the interviews. I need to make, you know, maybe make some connections with some change models. So it's, it's kind of grounded in something that exists, whereas at the moment it's just come out of my imagination. Um, so that all needs nailing down. And uh, 
I need to write a big chapter which kind of leads the reader step by step through this model and explains, you know, why it is, how it is in sections and how it all fits together. So that's a, a massive job. Um, and then the other thing I, I want to do, I've had this this great piece of advice, although it does involve more work, that if you if you can publish some articles on bits of your research prior to submission, that can that can be a good thing because it gives you the kind of experience of having it pulled apart by a peer review panel you know mm. and fiddled about with and you having to respond to things and all of that before you're having to do that with that stuff in a rather more important viva situation so i am in the process of writing up an article about the results of the questionnaire and i might weave a bit of the interview data in there which is basically kind of framed as big curriculum trends going on you know bunch of music teachers at a crossroads of change really important to know what they believe when they're at that point of change so i'm gonna you know finish writing that and chuck that off in the direction of a journal and and hope that it gets accepted sometime in the next few years because it's not the fastest process is it getting things in journals it's not and it can be a bit of a painful process you spoke spoke about peer reviews and tom and i have uh, have been through that process in the past i think you a few more times than me and it can be a little bit scary it can yes but um you know you've done a hell of a lot of good work there and it's so good to um to chat to you at this stage and to see that you're starting to um you're starting to develop some new stuff the new is coming (laughs) the new yes (laughs) exactly so um now we didn't talk about this before (laughs) we started recording have i done my homework i I ask with trepidation yeah have you always do my homework particularly if you've done yours in the previous episode would i turn up without my homework goodness (laughs) me well i will do you um uh i will i will allow you to choose then as you did me i think which one do you want to uh to go for first well, I'm going to go with a heavy something interesting, uh, something quite academic, because I know we both think it's interesting and we haven't actually, I don't think we've we've given this this uh, a shout out or a name check up to this point. Um, we both enjoy, uh, we've both enjoyed ploughing our way through a dialogic teaching companion by Robin Alexander. We did. I haven't finished it yet. I've been at it for ages. It's a great book, though really important for those of us, I think, whose subject disciplines involve oracy. Um, And I think there's two really great things that come out of it just on a really basic level. One is a brilliant defence and justification of the value of oracy. I mean, we hear so much about literacy, but, you know, we know that here and there that can sometimes be limited to the reading and writing bit and sometimes the oracy bit can get a bit of a raw deal and and maybe that's changing a little bit now but he does a very very good justification and defense of the the real importance of oracy which is great for those of us who do a lot of it in our subjects and also he does kind of present strategies and ways and theories and approaches to doing oracy properly because it's you know it's not as easy as it looks and so it, it's a great book it's a great read i'm gonna i'm gonna hold my hand up and say i've been plowing my way through it for more than a year but only because i we have so much stuff to read that i have to keep putting it aside and reading other things but whenever i do get a minute to read it i generally devour a good couple of chapters before i i have to put it down again so yeah robin alexander uh dialogic teaching companion and we're we'd love to get him on the podcast wouldn't we but we we're a bit would scared. <laughs> it's an episode yet to happen isn't it it's yeah, in maybe several because there are uh, there's a lot to say about or 
accuracy and a lot of um, assumptions out there that we just do it and that children can just do it and that's and that's not the case so those structures you mentioned they're, they're going to be important to talk about down the line okay yes. so what what do you want to go for next i'm going to do something to try i'm going to do a quick fire five item something to try Ooh, okay um super quick just because we are now at the end or not quite at the end but nearly at the end of a full academic year of doing uh you know blended and online and remote learning and all of that and it may be that some people are gonna have a little bit of time in the summer to try some new things perhaps or or just take stock so i was just gonna very very quickly name uh, and uh, anti-shame i suppose name and and praise that the top five things that i have learnt and used and found useful when I have been doing all of my online and blended learning. So I'm going to run down them really, really, really fast. So in no particular order, the first one, Teams Live Events. Everyone knows how to do a Teams call. Very few people seem to know how to do a Teams Live event. They're great for lectures. They're great for a kind of broadcast format. Um, Brilliant for kind of keeping control of things and uh, presenting things out to large numbers of people. Absolutely love it. And more people should have a go at it. Uh, YouTube Premiere, love it because you can put a video on there, but you can make it play out at a particular time, which gives it a sense of an event. Your students pile onto the page and the video that you've previously put there plays out as if it was a live thing. Love that because it keeps uh, it keeps the sense of an event about your, your lecture, but it means if you've pre-recorded it, you can sit on the text Q&A chat and give really high quality answers, um, having put all the effort into doing the lecturing bit beforehand so that's really good um if you're going to step up a little bit in your tech geekery open broadcast software obs i still can't believe it doesn't cost any money completely free piece of software which allows you to do things like play videos down into teams calls and lectures and things live allows you to mix graphics and cameras and things like that it's like a proper tv studio thing takes a bit of learning but it is just it takes your presentations up to the next level so if you've got a bit of downtime over the summer open broadcast software is well worth downloading Um, If you are filming stuff um, for lectures or classes or things like that, um, I have discovered that the only video camera you need is your phone. If you've got a half decent smartphone, Um, particularly if you've got an iPhone, you can film in really good high definition video. You know, people have filmed independent films on iPhones. They're really good. You don't need anything more expensive, you know, than, than the phone that's already in your pocket. Uh, you just need to put a bit of effort into the lighting and uh, preferably the sound, but that's that's another thing. So iPhone cameras, smartphone cameras, definitely a winner there for um, doing lectures. And finally, if you decide to be a super geek and use a green screen and have a sort of virtual background behind you, you know, projected uh, or, or provided in software onto that green cloth, the very best thing you can have uh, in conjunction with that is a pink shirt because... <laughs> <laughs> because that is the opposite end of the colour wheel to green and therefore the software isn't going to make any embarrassing mistakes when it tries to differentiate between where the background should be and where should you be uh, and therefore you will not disappear. A smorgasbord of tech geek goodies um, <laughs> that I would agree with uh, all of them, although I haven't had a chance to play with my green screen yet, but I will remember the pink shirt when I do. Okay, um, so finally, you know what's coming. Let's talk about well-being. Yes, well-being. I've tried to come up with a left field one here because 
the the slight issue with the well-being one is we've had quite so many now which are variations on a theme of get out and get some fresh air so <laughs> I think we're we're on the point of giving the well-being tip a bit of a sabbatical, aren't we? Because we I mean, clearly that's a very good well-being tip, but I think we're uh, we're running a bit short of material. So I desperately thought to try and come up with something which is nothing to do with going out and getting some fresh air. And so I thought I would share uh, my favourite radio station with you. And there is a well-being reason for doing that. It's not just because I like the radio station. Um, everyone probably would assume that I like listening to Radio 3 best of all, because I am a, a, one of those classically trained music teachers I was talking about earlier. But actually, my favourite radio station is a slightly random one, the BBC World Service which you didn't used to be able to pick up in Britain very easily at all until the online thing came along and you could just click and have a listen to it. You weren't really supposed to listen to it um, until that came along. But the reason I am uh, including this as a well-being tip is I like to switch it on and have a listen when I find that either I or the sort of domestic news programs and things like that are getting a little bit too parochial and a little bit too sort of bound up with the with the sort of domestic silliness I distinctly remember being home on a snow day from school years ago you know and all the telly was full of oh my goodness me the you know Britain has ground to a halt because there's been two inches of snow and all that kind of thing and I just whacked the world service on and they proceeded to tell us how many feet of snow had fallen in Russia and China and places I thought yeah perspective <laughs> exactly so it's it's a good tool um if the sort of domestic news agenda is just getting a little bit parochial for giving you a really good sense of perspective um, because you will just find that really really interesting things are happening all over the world and you won't hear anything about them and uh, just gives you a nice dose of perspective tom breeze well on your way to being dr tom breeze thank you very much <laughs> my hot drinks are empty they are they are so um uh, before tom needs to dive out the door to go to the loo after all that liquid um we will say goodbye to you um and uh, we'll be in your ease again next week You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. I suppose the special guest was me this week, talking about my PhD. Hope you found something vaguely interesting in there. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in your ears in a fortnight with something else interesting and the last episode of season three. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.